In the very early church, there was a man by the name of Augustine. Now, I've shared about Augustine a number of times, uh, quite a remarkable man. But Augustine wrote this book uh, that really changed the world. Frankly, uh, it just changed the course of literature, for one, but it also changed the course of Christianity um, in, in a very real way. And the book is titled Confessions. Has anyone ever read Confessions by Augustine? Got a handful here of red confessions. If you've never picked this book up, uh, it was written, what, Augustine's gotta be 300-ish AD, three to 400 AD, so this is an ancient book, uh, and yet it reads very modern. In the book of Confessions, Augustine does what had not been done before. There's been many copies and attempts at trying to do what Augustine did, uh, but he really takes, you know, what's the phrase, takes the cake. He shared authentically his sin. And he wrote it down for the world to read about. And Confessions is this really awkward book to read because he doesn't hide anything. Uh, Augustine, as a young man, had a, a massive issue with lust. Just an just incredible amount of lust. He was, uh, he was sleeping with many women. He was, and then even after becoming a Christian, he, would, he writes in Confessions of this ongoing, just lustful appetite that he had. But it wasn't just lust. He, he begins to expose all sorts of things in his life. And, and you get this sense of this man who clearly has been sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clearly just been allowing the Holy Spirit to work so far into his heart that, that he's getting all the nooks and crannies out. I mean, it, that every cobweb and every bit of dust and every, everything lurking in the corners that he didn't even realize, but you can just tell he's been sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he puts it all out. And, and the crazy thing about confessions is that he's not ashamed of it. That, that's the most marvelous thing of this whole work, is you're reading all this intimate sin, but he's saying, I'm a Christian. <laughs> what do I have to be ashamed of? Because I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. Isn't this what Christians do? Confess our sin? What I desire for this church is that we would be authentic Christians. And, and that word authentic is really thrown around a lot. And maybe it, it loses a little bit of its taste. It loses a little bit of its you know, meaning when you use it inauthentically, to, to be honest with you. Authenticity is that you're the real deal. It's that you don't just go through the motions, that there's, that there's legitimate base to your faith where it's clear you walk with Jesus. That there's relationship with Jesus. It's not just I go to church. It's not just I'm in a small group. But, but it's clear, you're, you're the person that walks with Jesus, and everybody knows it. And, and I think when there's an authenticity of your walk with Jesus, what comes out of you over time is this very honest, confessional, humble life. Because you begin to be a little bit like Augustine. You begin to realize that Christianity is not how to have your life appear like it's all in order, but Christianity is how to reveal to yourself that you are not your own savior, but that you need someone else. You need Christ. When we learn this authenticity, I think it will shake the church up. And I, I don't just mean our church. I think when we learn this level of authenticity, it will shake the church up. Because I think the world is waiting for a church to live into what Augustine so clearly laid out for us and what the scriptures lay out for us. Augustine has the keys. Today we're continuing through the book of Psalms. And, and really this sermon is really intricately tied into last week's message. 
In fact, some of the themes we're going to be going over in way might be review. If you, if you were with us last Sunday as we talked about the Lord's discipline over sin. And I really tried to expose the depth of sin and, and the, the, the filth of sin and the, the deadliness of sin. In fact, if you remember in that sermon last week, I referred to sin in the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 7 as a body of death. If you know the famous phrase from, from Paul in Romans 7, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And actually, the image he's getting at is of a, a dead carcass on you that you're hauling around the city with you when you walk around. And it's this idea that so, sin is so putrid and rank and filthy. And if we could see it for what it really is, we would know that it's nothing short of a body of death on us. And we would want nothing more in life than to just rid ourselves of this festering, sick carcass on top of us. That's the level of sin. But this psalm comes at it from a slightly different angle. This psalm really is an invitation for us to, to ask the question, am I confessing my sin the way God invites us to confess? Now, in the Midwest, preaching in Chicago, using the word confession, I've got to be a little careful because many of you, myself included, have a history of being in the Catholic Church. So when I grew up, I'd go to the Catholic Church from time to time. A few times a year, we go to the Catholic Church. And when we use confession in the Catholic setting, oftentimes what you're thinking of is going to confess your sins to a priest. And that's not what I'm talking about today. That has nothing to do with what the scriptures lays out for what authentic Christianity looks like. You don't need another mediary between you and your mediator, Jesus. There's not another mediator between you and the mediator, Jesus. You can confess directly to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need, get to invite others into it. God invites you to invite all the people of God, and if you need a pastor to come into it and bless you, oh, I love coming into those places. But today we look at confession, what it means to authentically confess your sin before a holy God. I think the big idea is something like this. The deeper you confess your sin, the deeper you will experience the fullness of the Christian life, okay? Pretty simple, if you walk away with one thing, that's what I want you to remember. The deeper you confess your sin, the deeper you will experience the fullness of the Christian life. So let me read the whole psalm to us, and then we'll go through it. It's titled, Blessed are the Forgiven. Verse one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, the idea here is not revealing my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave me. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Let that one sit in for a second. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love, that's a, that's a Hebrew phrase, hesed love. 
Hesed love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All right, first, we're going to really anchor ourselves in verses one and two. I think this is the standard which reveals to us the fullness of the Christian life. Paul cites verses one and two in Romans chapter four when he's working through what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to actually receive grace upon grace? Paul cites these, this phrase exactly. And the reality of verse one and two is, is how do we live that blessed life? I was actually toying with using an illustration of this week. I was browsing through Twitter, and one of the common hashtags you see on Twitter is hashtag blessed. And I was looking at what do people think is the blessed life? And one of the most popular ones this week was that She-Hulk TV show is coming out, hashtag blessed, okay? I didn't get much of a chuckle. That's okay. But we are very confused on what blessed means. We're a culture that throws this word around as if if it's meaningless. It's on a TV show. Here he lays out that no matter what your background is, no matter what your story is, no matter what your family life is like, no matter what happened to you in your life, no matter how deep the, the, the atrocities you've committed in your life, there's a blessed life available to you. Verses one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice in verses one and two, Three separate words used to describe sin. So when you're doing Bible study, you wanna look at the details. How, what words is he choosing to use and what, what do those words mean? Verse one, whose transgression is forgiven. And then again, whose sin is covered. And then verse two, talking about his iniquity. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. What are the nuances of these words? Well, let's start with transgression. Transgression has this idea of rebellion, of a departure from God. When we talk about transgression, we're actually talking very specifically that all sin is first and foremost a rebellion against a holy God. This is why David, in confessing his sin, would would say, against you and only you, God, have I sinned. And that was after he had an affair, after he had had someone murdered. Because he recognizes that before it's anything else, it's a transgression. When, When you have pride in your heart, when you lust like David, when you... Uh, do any kind of sin, whatever it is, first and foremost, before you've harmed anybody else, even when it's against someone else, it's a transgression between you and God. It's a rebellion against the God who is over you. That's why David says, against you have I sinned. David knew he had wronged others, and yet first and foremost, it's a rebellion. Then he uses the word sin. All right, so you got transgression, rebellion to God. Sin, also in verse one. Sin means missing the mark. It's like, a, like, a, like an arrow being shot and you just miss the target. Well, what's the target? The target is God's law, right? The target's God's law. Particularly for a new covenant Christian, the target is the life of Jesus, which is the law made flesh, okay? It's all God's desire, all God's design, all God's ethic and morality lived out in a human life, okay? And sin is, I've missed the mark. My life doesn't look like Jesus, okay? So I've, I've transgressed God, I've, I've, I've rebelled against him, and I've missed the mark of what my life is supposed to look like. And, and when you compare yourself to Jesus, all of us recognize very quickly we've fallen short. We've missed the mark. Even as something as simple as our, our selflessness, our, our desire to bless others, right? 
We've missed the mark. We compare to Jesus, we're not even close. Okay, we've got sin. Then iniquity. Now this word has its root in this idea of a twistedness or a crookedness. It's this idea that you're, you're just twisted and crooked from the way God designed you. I think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, if you know that character. It's this character that's just been so corrupted by the power of the ring in that story that he's just kind of like, I can't even do it with my body. He's just twisted. He's not right. And that's what sin is. That's what iniquity is. Iniquity is taking your life and it's just recognizing I've become Gollum-like. I've been crooked and twisted and and there's nothing, there's nothing in my strength that can untwist me. It, it's only the power of the gospel that can set my crookedness the right way. Do you see that imagery? Three different words. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. I've used this illustration before. I think it's very relevant for us today. If we want to get the fullness of sin, I, I think of sin like this as, as a massive car, a car wreck, car pileup. A few years ago, actually, on, I think it was on I-65, coming north from Indiana up to Chicago, right as it was getting towards the lake, in those wintry conditions, there can be haze that comes off the lake that makes conditions terrible, and you can get 50, 100, multiple 100 car pileups. And, and sin is a little bit like that, because oftentimes we think of ourselves as the person in the very front, the very first car that wrecked in that 300 car pileup. And we think, okay, I've crashed my car. And I see that my sin was bad. My sin had its effect, right? Whatever your sin was, let's just say that you have a, an anger issue or an impatience issue. Let's pick on myself, okay? Impatience with my children. How about that one? My wife laughs first. She knows. I heard the chuckle, okay? I have impatience with my children at time. I get quick-tempered with them. And I'm working on this. And regularly in, in confession, I'm asking the Lord, Lord, I don't wanna be that. I, I, want, I wanna have, have the kind of patience you've had with me, Father, Right, And so God's working this out of me, but, but sin is like a 300-car pileup where I'm in the front and I think, okay, who does this impact? This impacts me and my children. Okay, that's about as far as it goes. And I'm just surrounded by a haze. I can't see with clarity what God can see. I can't see that there's 300 other cars behind me in the wake of my disaster. The guy in the front of that has no idea. He just thinks, look, there's a little car crash here. He doesn't know that what's happening is because of my sin, it's compounding. It's causing more issues and more issues and then more people to sin. Why? Well, because you're connected into community. And when you bring sin into here, your sin, whatever you're bringing into here right now, will impact every person in this room. That's Christianity 101. There's no private sin. It impacts everybody. It impacts the way you worship. And because we're tied together during our worship time, then it's impacting the way we all worship with each other. You come in here and and you have a numbness to God because sin is present in your life. Now you are stealing from the community the gifts that you're supposed to be pouring into the community. You're supposed to come in here walking close with Jesus, but if you're covered in sin, now you see that, that wreck piling up. It just multiplies exponentially around you like a 300 car pileup. Sin is a rebellion to God. It's a breaking of his law and it's a twisting of God's design, okay? And I think what he's doing in that first few verses there is he's he's exposing the fullness of it there's not just one little angle at sin it's full but notice all three times God has a response all three the first one whose transgressions have been forgiven rebellion forgiven whose sin missing the mark has been covered and who the Lord counts no iniquity he's not counting it right 
What does it mean to count it? That's like a balance sheet. It's as if you had a balance sheet before God and God knew everything you had and, and God just says, I see the balance sheet, but I'm not counting any of it. None of it is against your record. It's all been taken care of. It's all been forgiven. It's interesting when you talk about the blessed life in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 are the doorways to the book of Psalms, okay? So the, you enter into the book of Psalms through the left and the right door, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And Psalm 1 is this classic, classic passage that talks about the blessed life. And it begins this way. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his, del- his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then it goes on, he's like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in its season. So Psalm 1 says, what's the blessed life? What's the blessed life? The blessed life is when you are walking fully in the Lord, right? That's the blessed life. It's when you you see his law, you're living his law, you see his community, you're walking perfectly in it. You're not walking in the counsel of sinners nor standing in the way of scoffers. You're just delighting in the Lord, But then you get through the rest of Psalms and you realize only one man's ever done that perfectly is Jesus. That's it. Because all through the rest of Psalms we see David has regularly been confessing to his sin. And so Psalm 32 serves as almost like an appendix to Psalm 1. Okay? Psalm 32 begins, okay, yes, blessed is the man who walks perfectly with God and who never sins. But for every man but Jesus who can't do that, blessing is still available. Blessed are you when you're forgiven and offered that first life of blessing even when you haven't earned it on your own behalf. That's the beginning of Psalm 32. Blessed are those who are forgiven. We can look for the blessed life in a thousand ways. You can try to accumulate as much money as you can. You can try to accumulate as many degrees as you can. You can try to accumulate as much family and friends as you can. You know, our our modern day blessing is experience. Experience is the greatest achievement, right? You can try to travel the world and see all the sights and immerse yourself in all the cultures and try to gain as much blessing. None of it will compare to really knowing forgiveness before a holy God. When you get that, you suddenly realize none of it compares to this. None of it is worth comparing to knowing you have been fully forgiven. Church, I'm only on verses one and two, and I need to ask you, do you know that? Do you know it like deep in your soul? Do you live that, that Christian life of walking as one who's been fully forgiven? This is an honest question, and I know on a Sunday morning you come in here with your church family, and and I know you wanna nod your head, right? Yes, I know that, I know my Christian doctrine, I've heard it, I get it, I'm forgiven by Jesus. I'm asking you something else right now. I'm asking you, do you live that blessed life every day? Is that the source of your joy in this life? Do you you oftentimes find yourself just lost in prayer, astounded that God has forgiven all of your sin? Is that true of you? It's the basis of the Christian life. It all starts from there. Everything flows out of that posture. Is it true of you? Now, out of that basis, I think there's two lessons, and he flows directly into confession. Lesson one, concealed guilt, concealed guilt, and unconfessed sin 
will physically destroy you. Now, if you're noticing some similar language to last week, very important, there's overlap here. Concealed guilt and unconfessed sin will physically destroy you. Uh, Last week, we talked about this in a specific way as it came to the Lord's discipline. And what we explored last week is when you carry sin with you that's unconfessed and you never really deal with it, no matter what it is, even something small that you might not think is a big deal, but it's an error, it's not in line with who Christ was, when you don't confront it, eventually God will bring discipline to confront it for you. And if you recall, the big idea last week was God will graciously destroy that which is destroying you. Sin will destroy you over time. It's like a dead body hanging over you. And if you don't get to work of rooting it out of you, God will bring you warning, 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 and then he will root it out of you through discipline. And God uses all sorts of discipline to root sin out of us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he's a good father. Just the same as I discipline my children to correct bad behavior that will harm them in the long run, he is a good father that roots sin out of his children. Now in this passage today, there's a bit of overlap with this, and yet the focus is more on confessing, and the focus is more on what it was like, his personal experience of being underneath the discipline of the Lord and being underneath this place of hiding shame and guilt. He says in verses three and four, when I kept silent, when I did not confess my sin and I just bottled it up, I tried to put a veneer on the outside of me like I was good, like I, had, like I was Jesus, basically. My bones wasted away. You hear the weight of that language? My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This is poetry, right? David's communicating doctrine through Hebrew poetry. This is, this is as deep as human words can get to describe agony. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as of the heat of the summer. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He's getting after this idea that, that when I concealed my sin, when I didn't confess it, when I wasn't honest about it, when I made myself look better to others than I really am, how many of you do that regularly? Okay, I confess, right? This... This is what we do. This is, a, this is sin. This is rebellion to God. And, and what you do, if you're like me, sometimes you walk into a room, into a conversation, and you pretend you know more than you do, right? Am I getting too honest for you? Pastors shouldn't do that, okay? I'm aware of my sin. I, I hate this stuff in me when I see it come out. We do this in a thousand ways. And David says this, when you, when you pretend, when you pretend that, What will happen to a human being over time? Because you're made in the image of God, you have a soul that's supposed to be behaving a certain way, is your bones will rot, okay? And some of you are experiencing that right now. It's not very pleasant. I was reading, uh, I was interested in what modern psychology would say on this topic, and modern psychology essentially affirms what the Bible says in Psalm 32. It says, when you are concealing something you know you have done that's wrong, and you don't get it out, you don't find a release for that, what will happen to you is your whole body will shut down. All your systems shut down. You'll begin to uh, cause terrors in the lining of your heart. You uh, can begin to cause problems to your reproductive system. You can cause problems to your digestive system. All the systems in your body can begin to shut down. You can cause heart attacks. You can cause strokes. And it's all this buildup of stress. And, And modern psychology... And all the doctoral looking at, we have doctors, many doctors in this room that could add a whole long list of things to that list I just gave you, will tell you that Psalm 32 is correct. It's describing a physical situation. 
Now, Christian, if the modern world is telling us you have to confess, if the secular world is saying, don't bottle it up, you, you, it, it will kill you. It will literally take years off your life. Shouldn't Christians be 20 steps ahead of the secular world on this one? But we're not sometimes. Sometimes we still come in the room like we got it all together. Sometimes we still come in the room like it's the guy down the hall that needs to confess, not me. Sometimes we still come in the room like I'm not the one with the control issue. I'm not trying to micromanage everyone's life. I'm not the one who's worried about tomorrow when I'm not supposed to be. I'm supposed to be worrying about today. I'm not the one who's not really trusting in the promises of God, right? And we come in and what we do is we shut ourselves off from confession and then we lose authenticity because the church should be driving the culture when it comes to authentic life. Modern psychology is interesting because they don't actually have true coping mechanisms for this. It was interesting reading the articles. One woman just ultimately said at the end of this blog she was writing on this, she said, honestly, there is no way to truly deal with this. There's no way to really root it out. The modern secular world has no options to deal with, with guilt. The best they can say is share it with somebody, but that doesn't actually deal with the root cause of the issue. So what does the world do? When you, when you talk to people who are broken, and this is my job as a pastor, I get to live with broken people, as a broken person living with broken people, right? When you talk to someone who's dealing with, with, with just real brokenness in your life, and you look at bad habits, and you say, why, why, are you, why do you keep beating your head against a wall? Why, why do you keep doing that? Right? What are they doing? Oftentimes, not always, but often, what they're doing is they found a coping mechanism to deal with something they know is not right in their life. Right? So what are the coping mechanisms? What are the modern ones? I mean, right, this is just secular culture in general is a coping mechanism. Right? What do you do? You, you go out and you sleep with a lot of people and you, and you have a dangerous sexual life. Right? And what, what are you doing? When, when you know the risks, you know the dangers, you know it's not good. But what, what's going on in, in a person's life who's doing that? Well, they're, they're coping. It, it, this is a, an outlet to deal with something that's not right. And they might not even have the words to say that. They, they might not even have the therapeutic words to, or, or the, the foresight to say, Something, something's causing this dangerous behavior. But it's there. Their actions are proving it. What do you do? You, you go to the alcohol or, or some kind of drug to numb. And, and honestly, this happens to Christians, right? You, you get into a season where stress is really high and then all of a sudden you, you kind of look back and you go, I've been drinking a lot, okay? And, and what's happening in that moment there? It's, it's, you're turning to coping mechanisms to deal with something that's going on here, something that has never been really fixed. I remember years ago, I, I, I was uh, talking with somebody about a leadership position in the church, and, and they, they looked at me and they said, honestly, I think I drink too much for that. <laughs> and I said, you're saying that joking. That's actually a problem. Like, we need to talk about that. Are you okay? Why, is, why, why would that be a barrier to you serving in leadership in the church, okay? So, so what we do in the world is we know something's wrong. The sin is there, and even when we don't have the words for it, we reach out to these coping me me mechanisms to try to overcome, when all the while, the, the real answer to the problem of sin is finding full forgiveness in Christ, that's it. I mean, the, the full forgiveness that Jesus offers, where your sins are no longer counted against you, that's the only thing that can solve this. 
It's it. There's nothing else. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I, I love it. Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians 4 as a man who's been fully forgiven, okay? And then he has this great line. He says, we hold these treasures. That's the treasure of being fully forgiven in Jesus. That's the gospel. You're fully forgiven. Every sin forgiven by what Jesus has done. He says, when you know that, he says, we hold that treasure in what is it? Jars of clay. We hold it in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What's that language? He's saying, look, when you're a Christian, you're not might, you're not Superman. You're a jar of clay. The, the idea there is you're, you're weak. You drop a jar of clay, it breaks. It gets cracks in it, sometimes holes in it. And then he says, so that the surpassing power of Christ can be seen. It's this idea that the bigger the crack in you, the more you confess to the world, the more you let people in and see what's really going on, then, then you're actually boasting in Christ because you're letting people see all the weakness and the light of Christ shines through those cracks all the more. That's the idea. I want the bigger the crack, the more Christ comes through. So I'm gonna confess it all. What, what am I gonna hide? What am I gonna hide? If, if God is not ashamed of me, what am I gonna fear man? Is that, is that my game? I'm gonna carry the fear of man for freedom you've been set free. For freedom you've been set free. God forbid we take the gospel and trample on it by walking into the church with the fear of man. What, are we turning our back on Jesus? Lesson number two. Real confession that leads to transformation requires agony over sin. I'm going way too long. I'm only on verse four. It requires agony over sin. Verse five. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You cannot confess what you have not grieved. And if you confess what you have not grieved, you're only giving lip service to it, okay? I, I think there's a lot of people in the modern church that have never actually experienced real confession. And uh, that's a shame. It's really sweet. It's really sweet. It's kind of where all the good stuff in Christianity takes place. Because when you agonize over sin, okay, when you, when you allow God to just get private with you and say, it's there and it's worse than you want to admit, okay, and then you work it out, or you allow someone to come into your life who tries just gently to share, look, this isn't right, you know, there's a little thing going on here, okay, and then you brush it off, you make the excuse, and you don't go home, and you work that little thing deep, and then you let God dig it real deep, okay? When you never experience that, oh, then the promises of God don't really mean anything to you, right? It, the promises of God are so precious to the soul that is desperate for it. They're so precious. But if you don't really feel like you need forgiveness all that much, or you feel like you kind of got it together, you feel like, you know, I'm, I'm really the, the teacher in the room, and I'm really the, you know, when, when you kind of walk around with that air about you, and then the promises never mean, mean anything. And, and you go through all church and your whole Christian life as if it's just surface level. You want depth, it's confession. That's where it is. It's where all the joy of Christianity is. It's where it all starts to, like the flowers in your life. I'm just imagining a person that's like flowers are blooming off of them and fruits blooming off of them. How does that happen? Because they're in confession. And then the promises of God are sinking deep, 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 deep. And what's coming out is more fruit, more fruit, more fruit. 
It's the blessed life, confession. And we miss it. We, we never go there. We never go there individually. We never go there corporately. He says, I confess my iniquity to the Lord. I did not cover my iniquity. I love that phrase. I did not cover my iniquity. It's this idea of, I know it's there, but I'm not gonna put a lid on it, all right? How'd that work for David? Not well. Not well if you know his story. He got 70,000 people killed. That's how it went. 300 car pileup, okay? So he says, I'm not gonna cover my iniquity because when I cover my iniquity, I just try to hide it. I'm gonna let God cover my iniquity. That's verse one. When God covers my iniquity, he buries it. He doesn't just hide it. He does away with it. That covering, is, it's a whole different thing. It's not just trying to hide it and do away with it. It's bringing it to light to kill it. That's what he does when he covers it. He buries it. See, when you just hide it, you don't actually deal with it, and you're, just, you're, 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 you're looking for more coping mechanisms, basically. You're just saying, bury it, and it'll come out some other place, right? It's just, it's just gonna come out in some other way. You let God bring that all the way out. And then you get real honest with people who trust you and who you trust, Christian brothers and sisters. You like get it all on the table. I was talking to a friend of mine. I hadn't, he reached out to me a few months ago. I hadn't talked to him. We used to play soccer together growing up. One of the best soccer players I ever knew. He went professional. And he, uh, he said, he said, Rafe, I did something the other day. It was, it was so freeing. And this scares me, okay? He said, I was praying and the Lord said, Confess everything to your wife. And he said, Rafe, I walked into the room with my wife and I confessed everything. I shared with her everything I had ever done and it just poured out. I didn't stop for half an hour. Everything. He said, Rafe, every lustful look I ever had, I shared with my wife. And then he said, you know what my wife said at the end of it? He said, she looked at me and she said, I love you more than I've ever loved you. Ooh. All right, that gives you chills, doesn't it? <laughs> what, if, what if marriages looked like that? What if, what if it wasn't just marriages that looked like that? What if church looked like that? I'd want to be a part of that church. See, See, there's something in this that is, that's just bare, bare-knuckled Christianity. No, no gloves, no, I'm gonna pretend that's not something it is. Just, let's get real with each other and let's make this safe, right? I'm not gonna ask you to get up here on a microphone and right, do that thing, but, but let's start forming a community that believes Psalm 32 is real. Because look, you can't confess what you have not grieved. You've, you've gotta feel the pain of it. And sometimes confessing to someone else is the best way that you can feel the pain of it. I have two men, I'm meeting for dinner, for dinner tonight with them. Two men in my life, my best friend's been doing life 14 years with them. We meet every few months or so, every few weeks. We get a dinner together, we share life updates and we confess to each other, accountability. And they ask every question you can ask. They know I deal with pride. They, they, where is it? Where's it been popping up, Rafe? Where is it? Root that out. Have you asked for forgiveness on that? They deal with it. Do you have that in your life? See, this is Christianity. It's really sweet when you get this. And I think we're on the cusp of experiencing it together as a church. Thomas Brooks, the famous Puritan, he wrote, writes this. Oh, sin, sin is that which has hindered my prayers and embittered my mercies and put a sting into my crosses. 
and therefore I can't but disapprove it, approve of it and disallow it and condemn it to death, indeed to hell from whence it came. I hope we pick that up. Lesson three is this, and I'm gonna close on this. Lesson three is don't wait until tomorrow, okay? Let me, let me read this next verse here. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, <laughs> okay? At a time when you may be found. When may he be found? While you still have breath. That's the idea, okay? That's today. Don't wait. Offer the prayer of confession to God while you can because you don't know what happens to you when you walk out this door. Life is too short, our bodies are too frail, and anything can happen on any given day. He says, while this day is today, offer your prayers. And I love this, verse six and seven, he says, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from my trouble. You, sur you surround me with what? With shouts of deliverance. You know, when I read that, I was just sitting on that verse, and I just couldn't help but think, I wonder if when, when we get this and we confess and then we experience the fullness of Jesus' death on the cross and what it meant for his blood to be shed for us, that the full weight of sin, all of it, placed on his shoulders, and then we, we sit in our confession, we look to the cross and we get it and we really see Christ and all of his blood and all of the thorn on his brow and we see the spear plunged into his side and we see him facing death and then we understand it for what sin is and we look to the cross. I wonder if in that moment, this verse, you surround me with shouts of deliverance, is that the myriads of angels are shouting over us, delivered, delivered, delivered. They're shouting deliverance over us. I wonder if it's meant to be taken literally. See, th this, this is the gospel. In Jesus, you have been fully delivered. It's the narrative. Everything else comes out of that narrative. It's all from Genesis to Revelation, one story, the story of deliverance. In Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross for me. It's your story if you're a follower of Christ. And if you're in here today and you've never experienced that, I'm, I, look, if you're in here today and your history with Christianity is come to church and give a nod to Jesus and hashtag blessed on Twitter time and again, you're not here on accident. God brought you here so that you would experience salvation for the first time. Not some caricature of Jesus. He's more, he is more, he wants more for your life. He wants the real thing for you. It's as simple as believing in Christ. But it starts with confessing sin and agonizing over it and seeing the cost of sin. The wages of sin is death. Christ paid it on your behalf. Now what do we do with this, church? I'm gonna invite the band to come up. And we're gonna have a little time here. There's a few things. Uh, I, I went pretty long here and I didn't get to the rest of this passage. And so maybe I'll put a, a piece out all right this week and try to get out the my takeaways from the remainder of these verses. We're heading into the new year. The new year for a church normally begins around September. It's a time when rhythms pick up again. And, and what I'm trying really prayerfully to do is try to figure out how do we as a church create more spaces to linger in prayer. Someone used the word the other day with me. They said, I, wanna, I want to soak in the gospel. I thought that was really powerful. And we're such a busy people. We're such a frenetic people. We're, and, you know, this, is, this, is, this church is full of go-getters. Really, we are. We're, we're a group that 
many of you are working downtown, you're, working, you're in Chicago, okay? You're, you're a fast-paced people. But if we're Christian, we should have some spaces to linger and just kind of sit at the feet of Jesus and hold your hands open like this and not get up for a while. And I think that would be good for us. In the new year, there's a bunch of kind of strategy-type things we're rolling out with small groups, but one of the strategy-type things is this. I want to create regular prayer and worship nights, just a regular cadence of them, that are outside of the Sunday gathering where, honestly, I kind of hope maybe even more people show up to our prayer and worship nights than even our Sunday gathering. Wouldn't that be cool? Because we would hunger to soak in the gospel and just to immerse ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, we need that space. This doesn't happen quickly. You don't get to what I'm describing if you're rushing. You can't, okay? Pastor advice. You, you can't rush this stuff. You have to sit in it for a while. And sometimes you gotta sit in it with other people, okay? So one thing, one takeaway is, in the new year, new year, in September, we're gonna be bringing in some prayer and worship nights. I would love for you to think about prioritizing those. I know it's another thing to do. Maybe you'd cut something out in order to do that, okay? But we're also gonna have another way to apply this right now. Um, we're not gonna wait for prayer and worship night in September. We're gonna have a little prayer and worship right now. So go ahead and stand up. How is the Holy Spirit moving in you right now? I'm gonna invite you to hold your hands out like this if you're comfortable with it. If you're not, just stand there. We're gonna have a bit of extended prayer right now, okay? And, and the idea here is just that we're a church. And I, I've said this before, and, and if you're new with us and you've never been a part of anything like this and this feels strange to you, I've shared, you know, wouldn't it be really strange if you went into a church and they didn't pray like they really believed it? Wouldn't that be the strangest thing? Well, let's pray like we really believe it. How about that? I think there's some confession work that has to get done today. I don't think God brings a word and sends his preachers and exposes the word of God for uh, just for a, a little head knowledge. I think he means business to get done right now. And so the band's gonna play some music, uh, and there's no words gonna be on the screen. And, uh, and what I wanna invite you to do right now is to pray and just linger in prayer. I found with confession that when God brings a thought into my mind in confession, to not let that thought pass and jump to the next thought, but to actually say, God, work that one a little bit. What else is there? Who have I wronged? Who are the cars that are behind me in the pileup that I need to actually kind of deal with it? And don't, don't rush it. Sit there. If we have some deacons that are in the room, can I invite you to kind of go around the, the walls, um, spread out a little bit? And if you feel like you want to get out of your chair and, and go find someone and pray with them, that would be pretty neat, I think. That would be a, a pretty good sign of a church that's healthy, that we trust our prayer warriors in to pray over them. Remember, there's no shame. Okay? I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to give you space, however the Lord leads you. I invite you, husbands, pray with your wives. Would you pray out loud? One of the reasons I'm going to ask the band to pray is that it doesn't get too awkward where your neighbor's hearing everything that you're saying, because really I want you to pray out loud. I want to fill this room right now with prayers. I want to be in that space. I, I, my heart really needs it. 
So let's pray with each other and, and do this. If, if you can't get out or you don't want to go to somebody and, and, and the Lord's doing something and if you raise your hand like this, someone's going to come to you and you don't even have to share anything. They're just going to start praying over you. Maybe God's just doing something and he's like, you need prayer. Just do this. And if you're around someone and you see someone doing that, if you can get to them before me, go pray with them. We'll stay as long as we need. And after a bit of time, the band will lead us in another song of worship. I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna invite you. Pray. Father, we give you this space. I don't wanna manufacture sentimentality. I, I, I am desperate, Lord, for the real thing. I want Christ. I want it. Lord, I want, I want so bad a church that is living so ferociously for the gospel. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room that has just some heart work right now, sin that's just been lingering. God, I pray for victory in Christ before they walk out of the room today. I pray for victory in Christ, victory over sin, victory over indwelling sin, habitual sin. I pray that chains would shatter at the name of Jesus. That that would not just be a song we sing. That chains would shatter. I pray that Satan right now and his demons would be terrified. Terrified at what's about to take place. What is taking place even now. Jesus, do a work here that no man can muster. And even if we're quiet and we do it privately, do a work that is hidden. So much of Christianity is hidden. Just do it. Lord, we love you. We trust you with this church and with our souls. Church, I invite you to pray out loud as the Lord leads you. Pray with others. Get up out of your seats if you want to. Go wherever you need. Spend some time with the Lord. Let's fill this room with prayer as the band plays behind us. Church, pray. Pray.